Okay, I'm going to basically turn my camera off and then Troy is going to pretend to make us look good. Welcome back. It's episode 152 of the Hoover Institution's Law Talk podcast coming to you as we always do. In the faculty lounge of the Epstein and U School of Law, where, like many institutions of higher learning, we have dropped the standardized tests, and all admissions are now jousting-based. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, former White House speechwriter, co-founder of Kite and Key Media, and one-time Denny's sommelier, and I am joined, as always, by the Brady and Gronk of the conservative legal movement. They are Richard Epstein, the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU, and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago, and John Yu, Visiting Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, and former Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the Bush administration. So, fellas... Got to be honest, um, I'm a little depressed here because I am the one member of the Law Talk team who is a native Californian. There is such a thing, born and raised, and yet I am the only member of the team, including our stalwart producer, Scott Emmergut, who lives out there, who is not recording this podcast from the Golden State. The low here tonight in the New York City area is supposed to be 14 degrees, and meanwhile, you guys are out on the West Coast frolicking taping episodes of uncommon knowledge smoking weed at baker beach i'm assuming whoops so anytime anytime i romanticize my home state these days i am told uh, california is a hellhole now don't even bother so richard let me start with you you do not live out there most of the time you're just doing your annual hoover rounds right now so you are best situated to see the contrast is california noticeably worse to you than it's been in the past. Oh, well, it's kind of difficult because everything seems to be shut down. But here are a couple of indicators that have mixed. One is the number of RVs parked along El Camino Real because the housing is simply unaffordable. And, and those numbers are down. So it's not as crowded. So that suggests that at least some amelioration has taken place for good reason or bad. If you actually look at Palo Alto shops, uh, the good news is many of them seem to be well populated. Uh, but it also turns out there are a bunch of store windows that have not been filled, which suggests that um, things are not as good as they are. A couple of major restaurants in town and country have shut down, which is always depressing. Uh, the Cam Stanford campus is, uh, uh, I say, two things masked and empty. I gave a presentation yesterday, and there were four people in this room, one room, all wearing masks, and there were 29 people on video and Zoom. So it turns out that you can see the way things are going. Uh, but the sun does shine. Um, and the temperatures are temperate, and we have all sorts of ways to frolic about. So I'm glad to be out here. I wish the state well. I, I think that the population exodus is going to take its toll, uh, but New York beats it on that hands down. So I'm going to turn it over to John because he has a much more judicious character with much more balanced appraisals about his beloved adopted state. John, how long have you lived in California now? Oh, almost 30 years. Is there a noticeable decline for, for you? Oh, sure. What, what hasn't declined in the world anyway? See, that's my true conservative <laughs> nature. Actually, Troy, you know, I know you live in New York. Actually, you don't live in New York for the tax rates, do you? But other people have left New York for the tax <laughs> rates, and they're in the negative degree weather. 
you know, right now it's um, 62 degrees and the water looks clear. And if I was allowed to shoot a gun, I could be shooting at the various gulls and birds sitting out on the water here, um, interfering with the salmon runs. Uh, you know, it's a beautiful state. It is a beautiful state. Um, the, the thing is how uh, much of the state is being ruined just by man-made policies when there's so many resources and you have Silicon Valley and entertainment, so much creativity and human ingenuity. And I, I, just, I think it's still a frontier state. People are always trying to do new things. And yet the, I do think the state is going down the tubes because of terrible school policies, poor policing policies, and of course, I mean, really bad fiscal policies. Um, so although the state, I think, is in a temporary, um, is a temporary bump right now, I don't know how we're going to dig ourselves out of it in the long run. Well, if you don't stop the forest fires by changing policies, you won't. And this stuff has real consequences. We went to um, Pismo Beach the other day and we went to the Monarch Bella. You, know, you, were, Monarch. you were at Pismo Beach? Were you surfing again, Richard? I, uh, it, without a bodysuit. Yes, of course. <laughs> Of course, no, but no, we were surfing. Multiple torts waiting to happen. No, what we did is we went to the Monarch Butterfly Preserve, and it turns out that if you go there, it's way down 22,000 birds, by not birds, butterfly, quite extraordinary. And part of the biggest problem is the population gets decimated, and its basic roots of movement back and forth get upset by all the forest fires. And so, I mean, it turns out that all things great and small are adversely affected by this. And the state is yet to figure out how it is going to uh, repair this type of situation. They have to rethink their land use policies from top to bottom. And there seems to be no sign whatsoever that that's going to happen in an effective way. That's the thing that is troublesome, I think, in the long run. All right. So we've got a lot to get to this time around. Why don't we start with this? We had this pair of decisions that came down from the Supreme Court on the Biden administration's vaccine mandates. And they came down different ways in a six to three decision with all the Republican appointed justices on one side and all the Democratic appointed ones on the other. They ruled that the Biden administration could not implement a sweeping vaccine mandate on large employers through OSHA. But in a 5-4 decision where Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh joined with the liberals they held that it was permissible for the executive branch to impose a narrower vaccine mandate on healthcare workers who are attached to programs that receive federal money. So rather than asking you about each individual case, l- let me ask you about that distinction. The, the criticism with OSHA is that you're reaching all these different industries that operate under vastly different circumstances. Seems like a real stretch given the agency's underlying powers. But with the healthcare workers, It's industry-specific. There's this added federal interest because they're receiving taxpayer money. Uh, The administration, in this interpretation, is in the clear there. Uh, Richard, I'll start with you. Is that distinction persuasive to you? Uh, It's certainly relevant. Um, I think the way in which you would say it is as follows. If they had reversed this and allowed the general mandate to survive and then struck down the health care mandate, everybody would be scratching their heads. And so when cases start to be closer, it's going to be that marginal justices are going to switch from one side to another. So in terms of the actual splits, the Kavanaugh and Roberts, what it tells you more than anything else is when you're trying to do the lineup, uh, it is probably the case that uh, uh, starting from 
on the left, uh, Roberts is now fourth, and Kavanaugh is the justice in the middle, and that Barrett has joined, I think, the other four on the conservative side. Uh, I'm not pleased with the health care decision because my general view about it is in an industry that is already racked with so many difficulties on overcapacity and underprovision of labor, the last thing you want to do is to be knocking people out. I've taken the position since the beginning of this that most of the decisions that should be made about site management should be made on the site, not by outside parties, not by the federal government. There is this broad gray area in the middle where the government doesn't tell you what to do, but it threatens you vaguely with some adverse consequence if you don't do it. And we don't know whether it's government or private action under this case. But I don't think there's any real surprise in this. Um, Money does talk. The unconstitutional conditions doctrine gives you fairly wide wanes. You cannot use it to be adventurous in some other area. But if it's health related and you're giving health dollars, then it seems to me that you're going to be covered. And so you have to strike it down on the grounds it's too excessive and things like that, which is not a clean call, whereas the situation with respect to OSHA was. John, let me have you pick up on the, the point that Richard was making there. So it, it was Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh who swung over with the liberal justices on the, the health care workers ruling. You know, Roberts probably not going to surprise anybody, but I do want to talk about Kavanaugh and what Richard was saying there, because you guys have both said at various points since they were confirmed probably since they were nominated actually that there were questions with both justice kavanaugh and justice barrett gorsuch seems to escape this uh, about exactly what kind of justices they were going to be there was a sense that they were not necessarily going to be entirely predictable so i I don't mean to hinge all of this on this one ruling Mm. I, i merely raise it as one perhaps illuminating case have we had enough time? Do we know who they are as justices yet? Do we know who Justice Kavanaugh is? Do we know who Justice Barrett is? I think we have a lot less information about Kavanaugh than we do about the other two Trump justices. Uh, I think you're right, actually. It's interesting that Gorsuch doesn't get mentioned all that much. On the other hand, I think we could really tell what he would be like because he wrote a whole book that people didn't really seem to read before his confirmation hearings about his views about natural rights and natural law. And I think it was pretty fair to predict then that he would be a very strong originalist, which he has been so far. Uh, I also think we know a fair amount about Barrett because she was a law professor and she wrote uh, some articles I thought were pretty revealing. In fact, there's a very important one, which people did focus on during the confirmation hearings, where she said, what happens if there's a conflict between... Uh, the original understanding of a constitutional provision and stare decisis, you know, what the court has said in its precedents. And she basically signaled that if the issue was important enough, we should pay more attention to the original understanding and that stare decisis has to give way. Kavanaugh um, didn't do any of those things. He doesn't really have uh, a book. He didn't really have a series of uh, law review articles you know, what we knew about him was primarily in his opinions. And in those opinions, he's clearly, uh, I think, conservative or part of the you know, conservative movement's effort to move away from just pure policymaking or make it up as you go along. Uh, common law, uh, sorry, common law constitutional approaches. But, and I think this is what we're seeing, it's hard. I, I don't see yet uh, the kind of commitment to uh, principles um, that, I think he's still uh, figuring, he's either figuring himself out or he's really more like Roberts than people might have thought. 
and he might really be attracted to balancing tests and not overruling precedents so strongly, although I don't think that's what we saw in the oral arguments about the abortion case in Dobbs. But maybe, you know, so far he has voted a few times with Chief Justice Roberts and the three liberal justices against the um, other four more conservative justices. Um, one thing I just said, can I just make one point about what Richard said about the um, vaccine cases also is just that, you know, this debate about, you know, the whether the spending clause uh, goes beyond uh, the more direct regulatory powers of the government through the Commerce Clause. You know, that's a debate that goes all the way back to uh, Hamilton uh, versus Jefferson. So I, you know, I think it's harder to read a great difference in principle uh, between, say, Kavanaugh and Roberts and the other concerns on that, because I think that's a debate that the founders themselves had. I, I can't say that an originalist would be wrong to side with the Hamilton approach over the Jefferson approach on that one, as opposed to say something on abortion, where I think uh, originals really clearly would come out in favor of overruling Casey and Roe. Yeah, that's not even close, I think. Um, but I yes. would like to make a couple of other observations. Um, I, I think Justice Gorsuch is a very interesting type. As, as John mentioned, he has a consistent philosophical approach, studied with John Finnis, I believe, at Oxford, has written some serious stuff. Some of it was actually critical of things that I had written on euthanasia and similar topic. But he's a much quirkier judge. So um, I don't think you would ever get Kavanaugh writing opinion like the one that we had in the uh, – Bostock case having to do with the transgender identities and the coverage of the Title VII of the Civil Rights Act. And he took a philosophical position, which I, I frankly still regard as incredible, uh, that a term has a meaning that nobody attaches to it if you can attach it to it after the fact. Uh, usually the way in which you think about deviations is, is a commonly common understanding of a given term. A horse is a horse and not a cow. And somebody misuses the term and the question, if the other fellow knows it, is a contract for a horse or for a cow. And the first and second restatement actually differ on that. But in this case, everybody thinks one way and he decides it the other way. There's then the McGirt case having to do with Indian jurisdiction in the state of Oklahoma. And that too is an enormously disruptive opinion in terms of getting rid of established practices that have been around for a very, very long time. And Roberts on those issues is more conservative. He is reluctant to make these kinds of changes. And he wrote, in fact, uh, he was on the other side in McGirt, and he actually decided with, I think it was with uh, uh, Gorsuch on, on the on the Bostock case. So I would say it's slightly different. I think there's a bit of a jumble on the conservative side, a lot of internal disagreements. And on this issue, one will be peel off on that one another. Whereas on the other side, it seems to me there'll be very few cases in which you will see a division within the liberal ranks. And that's certainly played itself out uh, when we did things with the Dodds case having to do with abortion. Well, let me ask you this question on the vaccine issue. John, I'll start with you. How much of the legal complication here stems from the fact that we're talking about this at the federal level? In other words, let's say the governor of the state of Nevada hands down an order that every company with over 100 employees in his state has to require vaccinations. How much easier or harder would it be for that to withstand legal scrutiny coming from the state level? I, I think you put your finger right on it, Troy. I don't think anyone disputes that the states are the ones that do have the power to impose a vaccine mandate if it wants under what's called the police power of the states. Now, that police power is limited by individual rights. 
But in terms of which level of government has the authority, the Constitution is one of limited federal powers, and those powers don't include public health and safety. It's been understood since the time of the founding that the states are the ones that are primarily responsible for public health and that they're the ones who can require vaccination. They're the ones who can impose quarantines. They're the ones who can impose lockdowns. And the federal government's job is to, uh, you know, what we call interstitial. They're supposed to fill the gaps, you know, like controlling interstate commerce, spending, research, scientific information, controlling the borders. But really, you're right, Troy, the people who really are going to, who should and have been making the decisions really are the governors. Um, now, the, the, the primary limit is not one of does the power of the state go that far because the states have the authority to control all the people and conduct within their territories. It's really do you have a, a right under you know, the Bill of Rights or even under state rights, state law, to uh, get an exemption from the vaccine requirements like for religious exercise, for example, or even to claim that their the vaccines can be harmful, for example, to certain people with certain medical conditions. That's really the only, I think, limit on what the states can do. Um, look, I don't I think this is a bit of a red herring. Uh, nobody says that OSHA is unconstitutional today, uh, given the fact that it deals with health and safety issues at the plant level. And nobody said, in effect, that if the statute under OSHA had redefined the government's power so that it wasn't limited to grave instances, the federal government would be outside of its issues. Um, given the 1937 revolution that has taken place with respect to the Commerce Clause, all that stuff is a given. And they didn't raise a constitutional issue when they decided it. They raised the statutory authorization issue on which I think that the majority had by far the better part of the course. Then when you start going to the state level, I do think that the individual rights due process claims ought to be taken more seriously. What has happened is what used to be an interesting and odd case, Jacobson against Massachusetts, decided about the same time as Lochner, has all of a sudden been cited a thousand times more than it had ever been cited because this was the decision which Justice Harlan was generally thought to be something of a conservative, and he in fact uh, was on labor-type issues. What he said is, I mean, you know, you look at this stuff, it's health and safety. Here's a guy who comes forward and says, I had some childhood accidents, which were really terrible and so forth. And he said that the state can kind of run roughshod over that. Uh, the kicker in this case is the $5 point, which is in Jacobson, it was not an order to take the vaccine. It was just a fine. And a large numbers of people say, you take the Bojack, you know, the, the great tennis player. All right. Uh, if the scopes in, in Australia said, you know what, you don't want to take this vaccine. Vaccine was $100. I don't think he would have been thrown out of the country. The real problem is can the state coerce people into doing this is against their own interest, which is a liberty question. And I think it's actually a much harder question than some other people would start to think. Uh, because what happened in this case, on the vaccine case, nobody talked medicine at all. It was all a question about powers. But if you then start looking at some of the data with respect to the vaccines, it turns out uh, there seem to be at least an appreciable number of cases having to deal with myocarditis. There's some talk not yet confirmed or even close to confirmed about influences on the menstrual cycle. There are a whole other set of side conditions that take place. So if you're really doing this in a state level, then the issue of whether or not you're promoting health and safety if a vaccine causes more damage than it prevents, I think is going to raise some very tough 
kinds of questions under state due process clause, but also under the federal clause. But at this point, I think the most notable feature about this is unlike myself, who thinks that the medical issues are critical, virtually everybody who's debated this on a legal point has ignored them, except for the three dissenting judges who really kind of disgraced themselves by making these wild-eyed claims about the severity of the disease with children and everybody else without ever once mentioning the situation of uncertainty associated with the vaccine. So let me move you guys on to this. It's been over a year, but we're still navigating the fallout from January 6th on a bunch of different fronts. So I I just want to take a couple of them in turn. One is these cases, which just had a hearing before a federal judge, in which various parties, including Democratic members of Congress, are suing in an attempt to find Donald Trump liable for the injuries that were sustained by police or lawmakers on that day. But Trump, through his lawyers, is arguing that he should have immunity because he was doing all of this. He was acting in his role as president. Uh, Richard, how plausible is that explanation to you? Well, um, we saw a decision come down about executive privilege and the papers with respect to uh, 111. I think it's a pretty strong defense, but I think it's clearly being eroded. The exceptions that they made with respect to the Nixon tape seems to have expanded. And so what they're going to argue is that this conduct was so egregious that it takes him outside the scope of employment and means that he acts as an ordinary individual. The difficulty they're going to have is his conduct was kind of very enigmatic in the following sense. He certainly, when he was standing on the steps of the uh, White House and not at the Capitol, he was breathing fire, but his fire was, please go and protest, otherwise our liberties will be lost, and that's probably protected speech. And then the charge is that he did not, under the circumstances, move the National Guard out quickly enough, and that's going to be debated. There's also some question as to why it is that Nancy Pelosi did not want to take the Guard in advance um, uh, before this thing got stirred up. So I think what happens is he doesn't have a per se immunity, but I still think it's much more likely that the people who are trying to sue him will at either the trial level or in preliminary motions, will end up losing. Um, uh, Trump has got enough problems already, uh, but I don't think he's going to lose the case. But I don't think it's a royal road in which he'll win it the first time through. John, what's your take on this? I think that's a tough case for the plaintiffs to win because the president um, generally has uh, what we call absolute immunity from damage actions that have to that you know question or challenge his official acts as president. So I think the way that they're the plaintiffs, you know, these police, uh, police uh, capital, I think they're capital police mostly, um, yeah. might be some DC police too. The way they're trying to get around it, I suppose, is to say that Trump uh, was not acting as president when he gave that speech on the ellipse on January 6th, but he was acting as a candidate. Uh, and He's not so running what, for anything. <laughs> well, none is mine. <laughs> but you know, the he, I, think, I don't think their claim could, for example, so here's how it wouldn't work. If their claim was the president is liable because he failed to order, you know, a military response or law enforcement response uh, and uh, to stop to quell the riot, that's clearly a failure of a president in his official duties. So that would not work. But if their claim is that, President Trump as a candidate for office, um, right, because the election still is not officially done in a way until the electoral votes are counted on that, you know, later that day. 
uh, you know, then he's acting as a private person who is running for office. I don't think they're going to win on that, but that's got to be their claim. I think, I, I just think, yeah, they, I, I, I think they just have terrible problems even trying to prove out that Trump's speech actually caused, uh, and, and Richard's the expert on tort causation, but that actually caused <laughs> harm to them. And it's a mixture. I, I, I think, Richard, it's a mixture of his uh, presidential roles. Trump is going to, it's a hard thing for Trump to say, though, because you're right, Richard, Trump's defense should be the election's over. It was over November 4th. All I'm doing is acting as president, even when I'm giving the speech on January 6th. But Trump himself doesn't want to say that because that would concede that he lost. So he, you know, it's a, he, you know, his defense may not be as clear as it should be because of the claim that he was still, you know, that the election was stolen. Look, the other thing to understand is, is John gave me the mantle of being an expert on causation. And one of the issues on causation that experts and non-experts alike. Uh, yeah, you debate. wrote the whole textbook on it, literally. Yeah, on I this did. But it, it's the whole question. That <laughs> well, I found this whole subject. It's, it, it, it's the question of novus actus interveniens which is Latin for new and intervening act. And that has traditionally been a way to say, I did something, but I didn't do this. Somebody else did it. Under the criminal law, uh, if this is going to be an incitement kind of case of one kind or another, you do not have to prove the completion of the act. It would be a form of an anticipatory incohate offense, sort of like an attempt that doesn't result in actual harm. But in this particular case, to make the causal claim, you have to look and see what everybody else is doing near in time to the actual entries and uh, close in space to those things. And there are a bunch of people up there waving hands, signaling people to move one way or the other and so forth. A lot of exhortations. And so the Trump defense is going to be what I did is I told people to get themselves to the Capitol to protest this indignant act or this immoral act. And what happened is somebody else, when they got there, decided to push them on. And so the issue is, do you hold him responsible for what they did on a joint causation theory, or do you treat it as though they separate? Usually, these are very, very hard cases, rarely decided on summary judgment. My own inclination is that Trump, foolish as he was on virtually everything he did on that day, I don't think they're going to possibly win or are probably going to win on the cause and fact stuff. And it's going to take a real lot of stuff to overcome the evidence of all the other people who are making exhortations. I don't know who they are. I don't know whether they've been indicted. I don't know whether they should be indicted. But suppose it turns out they indict somebody who's uh, exhorting people to come on them. And they get the testimony. He says, well, I came there and I was determined to protect my President Trump. Did you speak to him? Of course not. And they're the direct cause. The more that they are responsible, the less that he is responsible. And so I don't think it's likely that Trump will lose this. Uh, but, you know, given the mood of juries today and hey, Richard, can I wish- ask you something sure. mischievous that yeah, Troy, will not, Troy will not understand, but I will say Race on behalf of all first year law students, Richard. Who is the cheapest cost avoider in this situation? <laughs> oh, what, 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 this is, he's trying to allude to a famous four phrase uh, announced by uh, Guido Calabrese. <laughs> and it turns out that we have to worry about causation before we worry about avoidance. <laughs> and so causation is I hit you with a brick. And avoidance is you could have ducked. And it may well be that it's cheaper for you to duck than for me to shop throwing the thing. It is amazing how influential that is in academic circles. And it's but amazing in how invisible course, right? it is yeah. in most traditional tort cases. So you may ask 
That's whatever snide <laughs> remarks you want about. But cheap is cost avoider. Uh, it's like the hand formula. It's yes. widely discussed in academic circles, rarely applied in practice. We also just had the Supreme Court refuse eight to one to give Donald Trump the stay and injunction he wanted to prevent the release of the documents that the January 6th committee was after. These, if our audience recalls, are the, are the documents that Trump asserted were protected by executive privilege, but that Joe Biden said weren't. The one vote to grant the application, by the way, was Justice Thomas. Uh, John, I'll start with you. Two questions here. Number one, of course, what do you make of the decision? But two, what do you take to be the stakes here? By, by which I mean, is Donald Trump at risk of anything here beyond reputational damage? Oh, you know, the thing about this is I used to have this rule in con law that any case at the Supreme Court that had the name Nixon in it, you knew the Nixon guy was going to lose. Even when it wasn't <laughs> Richard Nixon, they still, even there, even with oh, like, the other, Nixon, other yeah. Nixons, all the other Nixons still lose too. And I'm worried this is going to ha- is happening with Trump now because, uh, Trump is losing cases so quickly and decisively that actually a different person who wasn't named Trump would actually spark a much more serious consideration of the issues. So there's two there's two really important constitutional issues here, which if had if it if the name on the other side had been Obama or Bush uh, would have actually, I think, not been given the back of the hand the way the Supreme Court gave it. Um, One is can a former president claim executive privilege, right? The claim uh, to confidentiality of discussions between the president and his or her top advisors, which the Supreme Court has recognized ever uh, in the Watergate tapes case, but which by practice we've recognized since the administration of George Washington. Um, So that's a question the Supreme Court's never actually decided. In fact, the Supreme Court uh, has mentioned in, in, in another Nixon case at Nixon loss that this is a, this is a live issue that it was a not, didn't have to decide yet. Here's a case where you have a, you know, a president who has a strong political interest to waive, you know, to give out all the information that should be privileged by a past president. Now, I, I will say that lower courts and uh, the Justice Department, including when I was at the Justice Department, we've long believed that the privilege is up to the current president mm-hmm. and not the past president. But the Supreme Court has never said one way or the other whether that's true. Uh, then there's a second issue which I think is also extremely important here, which is even if the president has executive privilege, suppose Biden had not waived the privilege and tried to produce all this information. Suppose the privilege was still claimed. The lower court here found that the need for the information by the January 6th commission, so great. which is, you know, got all kinds of problems with it that many people have raised, including Richard, um, overcomes executive privilege. This is uh, uh, actually a really important uh, decision. This is, I think, the first time that the Supreme Court has said that the Congress's need to conduct oversight actually prevails over a president's right to confidential discussions. The previous cases we've seen have been cases where it's been the courts that have needed the information in order to hold trials and to get the information for a defendant to put on their best case. And in fact, you might remember a few years ago, there was a case at the Supreme Court about whether a committee in the House could get President Trump's tax returns out of the Treasury Department and the IRS. And the court tried to kick that one down the road and didn't clearly hold that one overcame the other. So that's actually a very important point of constitutional law. And again, 
anybody named Trump other than Trump, I think Which, this is a case that gets fully briefed and fully argued at the Supreme Court rather than it just gets a one page dismissal. I thought it was pretty outrageous, actually. Um, there are a number of issues that are here. One is when John refers to the tax cases, uh, what happened is what the Supreme Court said is you may have need for this stuff, but there are going to be a lot of preconditions. You have to show that you can't get this from alternative places. And there was a, certainly an implied condition, at least, that somebody has to look at the documents, documents in camera to say which go and which don't. This was just a straight document dump. It is not clear that everything that happened on that day or in the days before it had anything to do with this. All of this stuff goes over. There seemed to be, correct me if I'm wrong, John, no confidentiality requirement. That is, once these things are done and handed over, do you have to keep them secret until you can release them publicly? No, in fact, I think it's got, you've got the opposite presumption. You know yeah. this committee is going to yeah. release yeah. everything I, they get their I, hands yes, on. So you know yeah. they're going to do this. And, you know, if you go back and you ask yourself, what interest does Joe Biden have to protect the office? None, if he could get to Trump. Uh, my own view is to go back to the Nixon issue where he pleaded the executive privilege to keep the uh, Pentagon papers and the similar documents prepared about Vietnam in the Kennedy and in the Johnson administrations, because he was much more of an institutionalist. I also think if it's a question of which president gets to do it, why would we ever say that the president whose deliberations were involved could have no say over the question of whether or not those things remain confidential? So I think that the whole thing was just wrong. Uh, the assumption that somehow or other uh, Trump could not have claimed this privilege if he was still in office is wildly overstated. And once you reverse that presumption, uh, then it seems to me you have to be much more cautious on the way in which you're doing it. I mean, Trump has been basically bullied under these circumstances. And there's a real political agenda here. One of the things to remember about the January 6th committee is that the minority leader did not have any stay in the composition. The only two Republicans on that committee were people who voted for impeachment. So I regard this committee as being illegitimate from the outset. And if they have that kind of dubious natures in, in their origin, to give them extraordinary power is to compound uh, the particular felony. Uh, you know, my attitude about Trump has always been, uh, John will remember this, as early as January of, 19, of 2017, I said, it would be really nice if he resigned. John said, you're being premature, Richard. I said, well, it is after January 21st. But it's one thing to hope that somebody will leave or opposes renomination, as I certainly do. And it's another thing to fabricate criminal charges against somebody or make it appear that he did things that were flatly illegal when, in fact, he hasn't done it. The whole purpose of the January 6th commission, in my view, is to try to make the next election a referendum on that day rather than asking the Democrats to account for what it is that they've done since they've assumed office in all three branches of government as of January 20th of last year. And the overwhelming sense that I have is it's not going to work. Uh, the news about Ukraine, about Taiwan, about inflation, about crime, about COVID, you name it, is there. But, you know, Biden is a victim of events, but he's also a creator of events. And I think it, it, this diversionary tactic is not going to work. But that's what I think it is. I, I'm not particularly sympathetic for Trump personally, but I don't like vendettas taken against anybody, even people whom I think should resign from office. Final thing I'll ask you in this January 6th realm. So we've been treated to this, to my mind, utterly bizarre spectacle of Democrats going to the mat over the last month on voting rights legislation that 
number one, is incredibly low stakes in terms of actually making any real world difference for who can vote or not. And number two, never had any realistic chance of passing, which on top of everything else has led to all this distemper about the filibuster, which also has no chance of being changed. This is maybe the grandest display of political impotence in my lifetime. But very quietly, there has been this bipartisan movement to update the Electoral Count Act. This is the statute governing the conduct around Congress's role in the Electoral College, the one that was at the heart of the dispute in January 2021, signed into law by no less than Grover Cleveland, I think. Oh, thank you. you. John, John, I'll start with you. Who is, question who for you is he? If R, stop it. <laughs> and who would write about such a fellow? <laughs> only a fool. If, if our concern is making sure that we've got a system that inspires faith in our elections and, and leaves as little room as possible for chicanery, um, where ought reforming the Electoral Count Act to fall in our hierarchy of priorities? And, and are there other steps that we need to be considering as well? Uh, this is a great question, in part because I'm writing a law review article about this, which I'm just well, there finishing you go. up. Just serve it up. <laughs> about the Electoral Count, Out, Count Act and whether it's constitutional. So there's, you could say the uh, Electoral Count Act, I think, fixes half the problem, but it doesn't settle. And it really, I don't know if it could settle the fundamental problem. So the half of the problem is uh, what constitutes a dispute over the legitimacy of electors. So uh, what the, uh, I think the reform proposals uh, uh, address, including, I think there was a joint op-ed by our uh, Hoover colleague, Mike McConnell, a few weeks ago, saying that you, that the disputes have to be of a kind where a state itself sends two different slates of electors to Washington, but that a dispute can't be, um, you know, like a senator just says, I don't think that state held its elections properly, or I don't think that state should have done A, B, or C. That, 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 oh, the only kind of dispute that gives rise to any kind of resolution ought to be one where, say, the governor uh, you know, certifies one slate of electors, whereas the state legislature picks another slate of electors, which is what happened in the election of 1876 and led to the, you know, the, the grand compromise of 1877 and was which spurred the electoral count. That still doesn't answer the real problem, uh, which is um, who actually decides the dispute then. So you could have, you know, there's several views. I actually have uh, more sympathy for the view that, um, the vice president decides, uh, but the constitutional text is unclear. Constitutional text says uh, the vice president opens the certificates that are sent to Washington by the states in the, in the presence, presence of, of the House and the Senate. And then it says in the passive voice, they shall be counted. And then doesn't say anything else. That's what the 12th Amendment says. And so um, Congress stepped into the role and said, well, we're going to create this system where a member of the House and the member of the Senate can object and then they separate, they discuss, and then they can come back and vote and overrule and toss out an electoral vote. Um, so I'm not sure whether I think the founders would have wanted Congress to have the power to reject electoral votes as the Electoral Count Act, uh, you know, assumes. No. Uh, so that's, that's, I think that's, uh, so I think, I, I think it's a good thing to fix the, the first part of the electoral count, but still avoiding the really the fundamental question. There is another element here which was raised, which is how it is that you 
get the legislature into the act. There are two provisions here, one for the uh, Congress and one for the election of the president. And uh, essentially what happens is the legislatures have the first control. It's virtually absolute in presidential elections and there are limitations that Congress can approve afterwards. So one of the things is if you say, as the legislature shall determine, what has been happening thus far everywhere is that what you do is you have a statute which says that particular party which gets the majority of the votes is the one who gets to appoint its electors, and then they are bound by contract to vote in a particular way. And so the question is, is there going to be any kind of slippage in this system? And the slippage could take place in one of two ways. In the case called Chiafalo, the Supreme Court, what I thought was an interesting and pretty strong opinion by Justice Kagan, says we're not going to allow individual electors to defect and decide to vote for somebody else. So it's not as though I'm going to vote for my opponent, but I'll vote for some third party. If one person can do it, everybody can do it. And then what you do is essentially you sever the connection between what the electors were chosen to do and what they do. do. And she bound them to the contract. This is not part of the original Constitution, but it's been around for so long that she was of no inclination to change it. But the second issue is suppose the legislature shall determine that after the vote is cast, it really doesn't like what's going on. And so it imposes a special inquiry and it then decides that the loser in the popular vote really should have won. And then it passes a new statute, which puts that into place. This is very different from saying, we have disputes over elections. And in, for example, in Florida in 2000, it was the Secretary of State who was supposed to resolve them. She was a Republican. And so the Florida Supreme Court, by a 4-3 vote, took this upon itself. Uh, but can they do this? And I think it's extremely important that one make it very clear that it not happened. Well, what's the evidence? So far, nobody has ever tried that. There have been a couple of places where it's been proposed, but it has died. And so the issue is, and it's a hard one. Do you just leave things well enough because nobody's ever tried that kind of a nuclear move? And so therefore, there's nothing to fix. Or you're going to put it in place in order to prevent this from happening, where the danger is that you'll make some glitch in the drafting and now the situation will be much more unclear than it otherwise was. And I think, in effect, I would rather nothing be done, but I would certainly like to see a bunch of statements from a large number of powerful people saying that the customary practice that all the legislature does is sets up the rules of the game and then lets other administrative officials do it. It's not going to come back for a second look uh, between November, whatever it is in December 8th when all the things are counted. I think that issue is actually very, very important to think about. And as you get great minds working on these things, they could insert all sorts of ambiguities where nobody thought they were existing. And I think now that these have been surfaced, there should be at least a declaration that we don't want to change the traditional practice. So here's an interesting and I think undercovered story that I wanted to get you guys in on. There was a federal lawsuit filed about a week ago against 16 elite universities claiming that they essentially act as a cartel, as a price-fixing cartel when it comes to financial aid. So the way this works is that these schools work collaboratively, and they're allowed to do this by law to devise their financial aid formulas. But they're only allowed to do that insofar as they don't consider the student's ability to pay. And it's alleged that some of these schools actually do find back doors to consider ability to pay, like giving special treatment to the children of donors. Anyway, the upshot here is that it's claimed that they are systematically overcharging students. 
Uh, the schools in question, by the way, are Brown, Caltech, University of Chicago, Columbia, Cornell, Dartmouth, Duke, Emory, Georgetown, MIT, Northwestern, Notre Dame, Penn, Rice, Vanderbilt, and Yale. It's like a roll call of every school that rejected me. Richard, um, does this case have any? Well, that, that roll call would be ten times longer. Oh, it extends the community. <laughs> I mean, look, I mean, you, what you really have to do is just say what's going. on. They say well, the way you described it, and I've not seen this suit, is you say that these schools are charged within uh, overcharging the market. Well, it's quite clear that tuition is very high, uh, but I didn't hear any allegation that they sat down and agreed to set prices in any particular way. Uh, and if they didn't, then it's not an antitrust violation. It's just a fact that. What's happened in the market is these elite schools have two things going on simultaneously. One is they ramp up the kinds of services that they provide. So it's no longer Spartan facilities. It's gymnasiums, it's extracurricular activities, it's diversity administrators or whatever else they want to do. And that's going to drive up the cost for which they'll have to drive up the revenues. And the other thing is that elite schools now are perceived to have a huge premium in terms of market attractiveness after graduation. And so that the number of students who want to go to them relative to what it was before has sharply increased, which will in turn give an increase in the prices. What makes it even more complicated is the nominal prices may very be high, uh, but virtually everybody is playing a discount game uh, through loans and through various kinds of scholarships, which actually change the value. So this is a case in which very few people actually pay the sticker price. Most people get some kind of concession, and you have to factor that into the situation because the practices on loans and on gifts may differ from one university to another. Uh, so at least at this point, I really don't see this thing going. There was one of these suits similar to this done many, many years ago, in which they actually had some collusion where on scholarship questions, it turned out that the schools agreed not to give super scholarships to superstar students. And Dennis Carlton at the time was the expert on behalf of the universities. And he raised a question, which I think is really very, very important, is if you're not dealing with profit-making institutions, why are you so sure that the profit-making model of price fixing is inappropriate? It may well be under these circumstances that you don't want to give all your money to a very, very few students. And so what's happening is you're broadening the base and you have different objective functions and tasks when you're dealing with universities and everybody else. The Supreme Court lately has tended to move away from that in the NCA case, uh, but in, they may move back it in here. So as uh, somebody who follows antitrust generally, I would say at this particular point, the suit is something of a, loss, a long shot. But I assume this is being fired by the Biden administration. Is that right, Troy? Uh, no, I don't believe it is, but don't quote me on that. I can. Is it I can a private lawsuit? I can effort that. Hang on just a second. Go ahead. I, let me, while you're looking at that, let me, I am not someone who does antitrust law like Richard, Shame but I, I represent the majority of Americans in that I just want the best product for the cheapest prices possible. And so I, I don't know, maybe I, Richard was around for this time. I was young at this time, but this, doesn't this remind you of the way airlines used to work before deregulation? So I, I, right, they, but they were this, authorized you, to run cartels. Yeah. yeah then this basically what these universities have been doing. They are basically running a cartel. No, 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 no. They are, not. they're cheating and they are all colluding to keep prices high and so what they do, they're larding on all the services that you don't want and you don't need because you can't price discriminate John's uh, the service you're wall. getting. Yeah, so you're getting, yeah, these, I mean, have you, have you gone to uh, any kind of dining hall on any of these big colleges? They're 
unbelievable. You know, when I was a college student, I used to have to eat things called scrod. I'm still not sure what that is. And hunks <laughs> of fish. cheese, hunks of cheese and like chick witches. Actually, I'd like chick witches and fish fingers. I was gonna now say. they have like uh, pasta stations, pizza stations. They, they serve Korean food at these. Pl- I mean, this, I mean, this is a unbelievable wonder world. I have, on I have college a- campuses because of the exaggerated bloated, you know, regulate on, um, you know, regulated prices of these colleges. Uh, you have, I, just, I, have, I just feel like it's a, I just think we're at the end of this period, just like we are at the end of these big fat, uh, airlines and soon we're going to enter this world that where there'll be like a Southwest Airlines and universities and there'll be a United Airlines and universities and we're going to have much more competition because people after COVID saw all the bloat and all of it and what they're really paying for. Sorry, I have a follow up question for you on that, John. But before that, Richard, the answer to your question: This lawsuit was filed in federal court in Illinois by law firms representing five former students who attended some of these schools. So they have to bring, they're not suing for five students. They're trying to make this into some kind of a huge class action. Right. Well, uh, generally speaking, if you have a private lawsuit, which does not follow a favorable judgment on this kind of issue by the uh, United States, it's very, very hard case to win. They have only five students. It's got to be a class action. And they're naming 15 schools and so forth. They don't even have one per school. It seems to me that I would regard this as a kind of a, a shaky sort of claim. As I said, I wasn't very sympathetic to it, even if brought by the government. I'm even less so if it's brought by a private party. So my follow-up for you, John, and then we can move on from this, but there is an interesting trend that I know when I talk to conservatives who are worried about academia, about higher ed, which is that about 60% of the time, they're frustrated on culture war grounds, the radicalization of the campus, the trigger warnings and the safe spaces, et cetera. And the other 40% of the time, they are frustrated by these big structural issues. They feel like admissions is broken, as in the affirmative action cases. They feel like the universities are too top-heavy with administration. They feel like the tuition costs too much and and delivers too little value. So as someone who's been in the belly of the beast for a few decades, I I wonder if you think one of those sets of considerations does markedly more damage than the other, and also to what degree, if any, you think they're related. Actually, I was going to say, Troy, they are. Don't you think they're related? I mean, Richard has watched it longer than I have, but you've been in it and I've been in it. It seems to me that both of those, this are bloated overspending, bloated bureaucracies, and then this sort of ideological uniformity are both arising because there's no competition. And there's no competition because these universities run a cartel you know, where they credit each other. They block new entry. You know, they vocif- that's why I think they vociferally go after for-profit education. I just feel like that's coming to an end that you're going to, for example, right? You don't need to go to college to learn computer coding, right? You can, you know, watch the videos on Khan Academy and then take a test and get a certification from, uh, right? Different kinds of educational providers, uh, I, so I, 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 you know, of course, college education and liberal arts education, I think, is good mm-hmm. in its own right, but it's not for everybody, and it's it doesn't need to be, but it and it doesn't need to be this sort of gateway to social standing. I think has become, and I think technology and then the effect of COVID has shown that this industry of ours is going to get restructured. When that happens, 
and you get competition, then those two features I think are going to decline because you're not going to be able to, you know, comp- you know, some colleges will, but not all of them these days are going to be able to afford the rock walls in the gym. They're going to be focused on no. providing the education that people want. And then you're not going to be able to have this sort of ideological smothering ideological uniformity because that's actually harmful to what the universities well, are supposed to be doing. So more competitive universities will have more freedom of thought and less of this uniformity. I hope. I mean, isn't that the way the markets are supposed to work? We just have a dysfunctional market here. Well, I mean, yes and no. Uh, the market is already working that way and the dysfunction is often from the government. But let's just start with two parts of the market. One, the elite market and one uh, general market that serves 95% of the population, many of whom take their degrees part-time while working at certain kinds of jobs and continue to take educational records of one sort into their 20s and their 30s. There is no cartel at the top. You can't even put one together. Uh, Cartels amongst 20 institutions is impossible. And even if you could agree on what rates would be, you'd have to adjust for locations, cost of living, and so forth. And there's also a way to cheat on a cartel, which nobody wishes to deny, which is the loan and the gift. So I regard that as highly doubtful. Uh, The question that you want to ask is whether or not these universities do too much in order to attract students. You could argue it's a cartel situation. That would be true, John, if in fact it was like the CAB where they put caps on prices and then in order to get people there, you had to give them non-cash benefits. But so long as you don't put cap on prices, you're not going to get that kind of askew that would otherwise take place. So, I mean, you just don't have to worry about that. The rest of the educational system is exactly the way in which you describe it. Um, You're somebody 26 years old. You have a child at home. You're working a part-time job. You don't want the fancy dormitories, the rest and so forth. And so you go to the kinds of universities that give you a straight education, sometimes Zoom, sometimes in person and so forth. And you want the minimum of frills. The difficulty in that sector is government regulation because some of these are organizations are favored if they're run by states, but not by private parties. Some universities get themselves inspected to the point where they're forced out of business. And I've actually been involved with a couple of these institutions that have been driven out by government regulation in one case or so, which I regard as actually as truly scandalous uh, at the bottom end of the particular market through the accreditation types of system. So I think it's, it's, it's really there. But to treat this as a huge market, as a kind of a single situation, is I think an accurate you know, understanding of the way in which it works. It's much more highly variegated on that. And the greater the degree of variegated at either any given price point or any location, the harder it is to make an antitrust case go. I mean, I think it's instructive in the following way. The Biden administration, I think, has monopoly fever in a large number of areas. But if they're not bringing this particular case, and it's done only by private parties, uh, that's to suggest that if this administration is going to pass on a juicy claim like that, the claim probably is not worth very much. Final thing that I thought I'd ask you guys about, because it's just such a weird story that I I couldn't resist it. A decision just came down from the 11th Circuit, in a case out of Georgia, where the local sheriff had yard signs placed on the lawns of registered sex offenders during Halloween that had stop signs, big red warning labels printed on them, that said no trick or treat at this address. And there was a lawsuit filed against this. And the 11th Circuit found in favor of the sex offenders said this was an example of compelled government speech. The lower court had said, well, these people can put up their own signs disagreeing with the sheriff's sign. The 11th Circuit said, no, the issue is that they have the right to not say anything at all 
which would extend to not having someone put the sign up on their property. And they said, look, protecting children from sexual abuse is a compelling state interest, but this is not a narrowly tailored enough way to do it. John, I'll start with you. What's your reaction to this? So it was challenges compelled government speech and not, I mean, the traditional challenge to these kinds of things is usually uh, the government's imposing an additional sentence on me that wasn't covered, you know, when I was sentenced, you know, when I was convicted and sentenced. And so that's an odd one. And there have been, you know, cases like this actually about, in fact, there was one at the Supreme Court just a few years ago about whether uh, executive branch officials can sort of do things to sex offenders that go beyond yes. what the court sentenced them to at the time. And, and, and so that's weird. That's a, it's a compelled government. Speech. Well, this is how I would think of it is um, if, you know, the government is going onto your front yard and putting a sign on it without your permission, that's a violation of your free speech and property rights. I mean, there's a, that's actually, I don't even think that's controversial. I, I always thought the right to have property is the right to <laughs> exclude people from speaking on it. Um, and this wow. is uh, in part the what underlies the court's cases about you know campaign speech, about the union dues case, and on and on. I, I, I don't even think it's a very hard one, actually. <laughs> I don't think it's hard either I, in my final motion. But one of the things I would say is I would not put too much on the property side. What the government does is it takes the parkway, which is public property, and it says the man who lives at 4482 uh, Elm Street is a sex offender. It's not an invasion of private property. It's not a form of first speech. It's not even clear that it accounts as a form of defamation because it's a true statement. Oh, wait, can, it, I, can I make it? Did I get something wrong? Did they put the signs? No, on I'm the just saying. But I'm saying. Road no, I'm just saying. If you, if you if you put them on the road, oh, you have oh, all you just these put them in front things. of their house, which yes. is not what they did. They were yeah, on they the put them on yeah, the property. Okay. But right? I'm saying. Yeah. But okay. you know, this has always been the great puzzle. You get all the pop without the trespass, without the compelled speech. I think that that's also improper. And the argument I would say is we have a very clear criminal code which tells you what you can and cannot do to sex offenders. And it is not permissible for somebody to try to strengthen this thing at the administrative level if it hasn't been authorized um, at the uh, legislative level or through valid regulation. So he's just a lone ranger. Uh, I think John is right, but I don't think it's going to be only the property stuff because the danger of your rationale is uh, – Sheriff number two is going to follow my advice and you won't be able to get him. And I think you want to be able to get him either way. And of course, if it turns out that the statute says that we now authorize you to put these signs on Halloween on the homes of sex offenders, at that time, you do have a forced speech case. Uh, the one case that has been distinguished, but 40 years ago, a case called Pruneyard sort of said that in certain cases to get messages across to the public at large, you could put signs on shopping centers, but that decision clearly distinguished between the shopping center and the home. So I, I think this guy is probably home free. You could remove the signs. The question is, you get any monetary damages is something that I'll leave to John, a true expert on the law of defamation or to another day. <laughs> <laughs> All right, fellas, that is going to have to do it for this installment. My thanks as always to you both, to our producer, Scott Emmergut, and to all our wonderful listeners. Remember to do us a favor and rank the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back with you soon. Until then, the faculty lounge is officially closed. All right.
podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.